Welcome to the latest Money Makers podcast with me, Jonathan Davis. Uh, I'm joined today by John Kay, the well-known author and economist. Uh, and today we're going to be talking about uh, recent developments in the United States and, and, and perhaps uh, the implications for the rest of the world in that uh, in the election of Donald Trump as president. Uh, John, you just, as it happened, just come back from America. You were in New York where uh, Mr. Trump is setting up his, his court in preparation for becoming president. Um, first of all, was the result a surprise to you as it has been to obviously many people? I mean, of course it was. I mean, it wasn't impossible, but it was still a shock to wake up on uh, Wednesday morning and discover that Trump was president-elect. But it coming so soon after Brexit when we saw a very similar uh, surprise to the to the establishment and, and indeed to the betting markets and uh, the financial markets, um, there clearly is something going on out there which has escaped uh, most of us. Um, if how I would you characterize you, Jonathan, of what I said right at the end of other people's money. Perhaps the most significant political development of our time is the populist rage of disgruntled people who are no longer confident that the country in which they live is in tune with their values and to think they have experienced less than their share of overall prosperity in a reaction against a democratic politics perceived as out of touch with the needs of ordinary people. Fringe parties across the developed world have attracted the votes of left-behind groups. Parties with nothing in common except a shared sense that they, those in charge, fail to understand or identify with the needs or values of the values of the protesters. It was, I'm afraid, prescient, and I wish it hadn't been. <laughs> the man who foresaw Trump's election, we can already see right, the headlines. Well, right I wouldn't there. quite put it like that. <laughs> But, uh, but the, the man who saw that these things might go wrong, yes, and that to the, the 2008 crisis was in the long run a yes. threat to the democratic politics we used to and the kind of settlement in terms of lightly regulated capitalism and liberal democracy Which that we've, we've all grown accustomed to. Grown accustomed yeah. to. Okay, on that point, was it? I mean, would you say it was the crisis itself, or has it been the reaction to the crisis that has helped? And it's taken seven or eight years for this to become manifest in the in the. Yes, I, I think it's both. It's the weakness of democratic politicians' response to the crisis, right. and the continuing nature of the recession, and the particularly inept response. I think in Europe, where there's been there's been this strange mixture of in France and Germany, in particular, you have the anti-market rhetoric which is combined with an absence of any attempt either to sort out failed banks or to uh, rein in the financial sector. Actually, Britain and the United States have actually been more effective in introducing at least some reforms than right. France and Germany have been. And yet we're the ones who've got the, the <laughs> these, <laughs> these votes to take place and uh, perhaps illustrate what's yes. going on. One thing I didn't expect was that Britain and the United States would be the first countries where this this kind of extreme manifestation would have an effect on the political, have a big effect on the political landscape. Right, so but here we are, there's already an implicit assumption here is that, is that this result is a, is a bad result, or at least it's a, it's a surprising result, but it's also a bad result. Well, I didn't, wouldn't have voted for Trump, and I suspect no. you wouldn't have, and I guess not many of our listeners would have. Indeed, <laughs> indeed. So what is it, let's just analyse that a little bit, what is it about him uh, that is, uh, I, I don't know how you describe it, objectionable or potentially dangerous? Uh, what is? What are the characteristics of Trump that um, put us off? Quite apart from, there are the personal characteristics, which are 
I think many people would agree, quite offensive. <laughs> but that isn't, of course, necessarily what people are voting for. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, there are lots of been lots of objectionable people through history who actually gone on to do some quite personally objectionable things. Who've gone on to do some quite good things yeah. uh, for the common the common man. There have also like. been personally objectionable people who've gone on to do some very bad, things. extremely bad things. Exactly. <laughs> and we <laughs> we all know who they are. We don't. But I mean, we're not. Well, are we? I don't know. Are we saying that Mr. Trump is potentially, you know, he's he's going to become a sort of demagogic leader who's going to, uh, uh, you know, undermine the uh, the whole stability of the American society? I mean, the Guardian had a great twelve-page section saying, "Is Mr. Trump going to destroy America?" Question mark. I think America's a pretty resilient place. So it'll take more than probably take more than Donald Trump. To Indeed, America. On the other hand, firstly, he is. Um, unpleasant uh, demagogic xenophobe and these are not people we actually want leading major countries and the other striking thing about Trump is he seems very ignorant and opinionated and really doesn't care that he's ignorant and opinionated in a sense we would be better off just with a a random member of the American public uh, than we are with this man but yet a lot of people have voted for him obviously not half the population. But it was said, I do remember, it was said earlier this year that um, uh, you know, Mrs. Clinton was the only candidate that Trump could beat. Um, and that, that <laughs> proved to be right. <laughs> proved to be right. Which is, uh, a, well, it's a reflection of a broader issues perhaps in the way the American political system works. Uh, that you only seem to get these kind of, um, uh, you know, you get a lot of retreads in there. I think. <laughs> um, but So from what we know of, of what Trump is going to do, I mean, I mean, he's, he's, he's obviously, he's said a lot of things and some of them are contradictory and some of them he doesn't, doesn't believe himself, obviously, but, no. you know, he's, he knows how to whip up the crowd, if you like. Um, so one of the most, the most serious one, I suppose, would be his, um, his views on trade or his, his, his sort of professed views on trade, yeah. which is that he, he basically, he wants to protect those certain industries in the States which have been effectively um, put out of business by competition from developing countries, China and the rest of it, the Rust Belt and so on. Um, I mean, is he, are his instincts totally wrong there? Um, mostly they're wrong. I mean, one, one of the oldest debates in economics, it goes back to the 18th century, has been between the people who think that trade is an activity in which you, you trick other people out of, uh, out of money and people who understand that trade can be mutually beneficial. And actually one of the great insights of modern economics is that trade is mostly mutually beneficial. Can Uh, be mutually beneficial, yeah. 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 And it points particularly to Trump, because of course the kind of deal-making that Trump has traditionally engaged in has not been value-adding in most cases. It, It has actually been more of the kind making gains at other people's expense, which is, is, is in that sense worrying, that he, there's a lack of understanding there of what business is really about, just as business isn't really about telling people you're fired. Yes. <laughs> it's a caricature of business which people quite like to watch, but it's not, as we all know, how you really run right. good organisations. So all that's... Uh, very unattractive. But it is true, of course, that while, you know, American consumers have gained 
very substantially from the availability of cheap manufacturers from China. There are also a lot of people who are employed in industries that have been put out of business uh, by competition who feel sore about it. And it's one of the paradoxes of democratic politics that you know minorities who lose a lot actually feel uh, a lot more strongly than majorities who gain a little. And that's part of our problem here. But do we know, I mean, is it... Is the problem too far gone, if you like, for uh, to save you know some of the Rust Belt industries that uh, uh, that he's talking about? I mean, it's a it's a big ask. But is it actually? I mean, is he is he bound to disappoint his? Yeah, his I mean, he's bound to. I mean, low skilled manufacturing isn't coming back to Britain no. or the United States. You can maybe slow down the extent to which it goes, but that 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 that, that is really all. And there are risks involved, and there are also, if one's honest. Um, huge benefits to the rest of the world as well as the majority of us that the, the last 20 years have lifted lifted more people globally out of poverty than any previous decades in history and that's something we should all be rather proud of even if people who live in the rust belts of the united states and uh, equivalent areas of britain feel justifiably sore about it right Governments don't seem very good at managing these kind of transitions. Maybe it's not their job to manage these transitions. They have to deal with the consequences of industries being displaced, no. um, you know, going back to the loom workers and so on. You, the change happens, and it happens quite quickly, more recently. Yeah. And you're right, governments haven't been good at um, dealing with these transitional issues, which is not actually really for want of trying. You know, there is an awful lot of effort and money which has gone into supporting... Uh, depressed areas which are feeling the impact of either technology or trade and there isn't that much to show for it you know the kind of industrial estates that we created in scotland um, in north of england and wales uh, there have been some successes but not so many right so it's it, it is a challenge so therefore people have got to uh, they've got to be retrained they've got to be re-educated no. and some of them of course won't won't get back into the labor force at all um, and it's going to be very difficult for people to accept that relatively low-skilled employment in, in developed countries in the future is mostly going to be in services. Not in manufacturing. Not in manufacturing, especially since services have traditionally been rather more women's work than, than right. men's work. So there's a kind of emasculation about this process, which I think is part of the resentment which, is, uh, which all this has... Has produced. Now, of course, the American political system is is famously meant to have many checks and balances. Uh, it is true. Trump does have uh, a, a luxury, perhaps it's not a luxury, but uh, that other presidents are not enjoyed, which is that Congress is at least notionally uh, the, Congress is the same party. As he is notionally involved. It's really the same party. Is <laughs> something we'll 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 learn over the next yeah. year or two. But what about, and let's move on to the next thing. I mean, trade is, is obviously, that could have the most consequences for the rest of the world, leaving aside military mm-hmm. issues. Um, uh, what about, I mean, his, his obviously his uh, campaign on immigration was pretty outspoken and pretty clear-cut. Um, and it struck a chord with people. Um, now, you as an economist uh, must believe on the whole that immigration is on balance a good thing for the same kind of reason that... Uh, uh, trade is a good thing. Well, I'm rather more sceptical about immigration than oh, I am right. about good. trade, frankly. Um, in what way? Um, 
I mean, clearly, uh, you know, high-skilled immigration, even high-skilled immigration, it benefits us, yes. but at the expense of the countries we, 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 we take, take the people these from. people for, yeah. from. Yeah. And one is bound to wonder whether the, the Indians and Chinese have done amazing things in countries to which they've immigrated, yeah. what they might have done if they'd been at home. Now, to be fair, Scotsman, you'd have to say yeah. you'd have to believe the same. <laughs> you have to raise the yes. same question. Yeah. Um, yes, uh, 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 and I think you would. And it's it's a very interesting question that you can find Scots in leadership positions in business all around the world. All around the world. Yes, uh, and there are relatively few in Scotland, and the ones you can point to in Scotland have been successes in the last 20, 30 years in, in Scotland are rather oddball figures. You know, you're thinking of people like Brian Sutter at Stagecoach or Jim McCall at Clyde Blowers who've come from kind of outside the Scottish mainstream to, to enjoy the success they have. So it's a fair question to put to a Scotsman, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so but high school immigration, even there, you, you might have some questions about it, but obviously in terms of uh, I mean, the problem the States has is they have a, there is a lot of illegal immigra immigration, whether that's yeah. a good thing or a bad thing is another issue. But um, uh, and it's, it's on a quite a significant scale, uh, and these people are doing low-paid jobs that have been done before by other parties. Um, so he's obviously going to do something in that area, um, uh, but I guess the risk there are not so much economic as as in terms of kind of social cohesion. I think, I think that's right. And what he can do, well, you can talk to people who know more about the logistics of that than I do, but the, the promises that have been made seem fantastic. Yes. Uh, we'll see what the reality turns out to be. Yes. So and in, in, when you were in New York, did you get a sense of the people you were, I don't know who you were visiting or talking to, but I mean, they're presumably more in shock than, than yeah. people in other there, parts there, of the country. There weren't a lot of Trump voters among them. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, and that goes for the Republicans as well as the Democrats, whom I know there. And I, I, I think the overall mood was, was one of shock and denial. It's the same as I find talking in, in the UK about Brexit, actually. Yes. That people continue to cling to the idea that they will wake up and things will carry on pretty much as they always have been. And yeah. I, I think that's naive. You think that's naive. So what, what's going to happen in this country? Uh, in the, in your this, best view. In this country, um, what people call soft Brexit seems to me not a realistic option. It's not going to be on the table. It, it's, it's not going to be on the table. It's not on the table on either side, really. It's not going to satisfy... Uh, the parts of the Conservative Party which wanted Brexit, and it's not going to be acceptable to majority of the EU member states. So we're in for something much more complicated long term. And the thing I find most depressing about it is people's, or pe political people's failure to understand the degree to which all of this is about incredible detail. Yes, it's about. Uh, what the rules and regulations are about thousands and thousands of products. And uh, there's, I think a lot of the people who talk about it in political terms have just no sense of that, of that as being what's involved in all of this, which means we're not going to really understand what the impact is for years and years and years. And do you still think it will happen? I think it will happen. I think it's... 
I think it's difficult to see how it cannot happen from uh, from here. Though, almost the best hope of it not happening is the problems which the Eurozone itself faces. Indeed. And in, indeed, this could not have happened if, the, if Europe, the EU, had been better at facing up to the existential problems it, it has with the... Uh, the failure of the Eurozone and the weakness of the European banking system, which is very much bound up with that, uh, and the difficulty of handling refugee and migration issues. And EU has not been effective in handling these and shows little ability to come to grips with them. So there's going to be, essentially, what you're saying is there's going to be uh, problems on both sides of the, of the channel, essentially. Yeah. Uh, and yet... The one upside which there is in all the political developments we're talking about is that it may be sufficiently traumatic to ease some of the log jams which there have been around you know, politics in the past. We normally see one in investment terms already in the United States and that the idea that interest rates might not be at yes. inconsequential levels forever, that now looks much more real than it did even three or four weeks ago. Well, it's been very interesting, hasn't it? I was going to mention that. I mean, what we've seen, uh, in fact, since around the time of Brexit, obviously that's sort of coincidental, bond yields have gone up, um, the dollar's strengthened. The bond yields here seem to have gone everywhere. So yeah. <laughs> Hard to make any sense of it at all. And the equity market yeah. has gone up. In yes. the case of Trump, you know, since Trump yeah. came in, the equity market, bond yeah. yields have gone up. So it looks like it could, you know, and meanwhile we're possibly at some sort of turning point in central bank policy, well, maybe some sort of turning point, I don't know. Um, so we could be at some sort of juncture economically, which is, uh, which you say, we could have actually bigger impact than, than some of this sort of political stuff. Yes, and, and when asked, for example, can, <clears throat> might the election of Trump uh, be a catalyst for reducing the power of corporate lobbyists in, in Washington? He's proposed know. as much. He's, he's talked in these yeah. terms. He might achieve something. Yeah, it's hard to believe Hillary Clinton would have. <laughs> I think that would be one of the few uh, banker bets one could have taken there. Yeah. Um, so overall, then, just sort of summing this up, I mean, you, you, it's change is happening, and we've got to have to rethink a lot of things in the world. Um, there are some issues around international security and so on, which are no doubt going to worry people a lot, uh, possibility of conflict, or um, so on and so forth. Um, but sort of stepping back one step on about that, the I'm betting that you're still reasonably optimistic about the ability of the human race to deal with this kind of interlude. I think it has to be. But <laughs> equally, I think we have to acknowledge we've lived our lives in what is, by historic standards, a period of quite exceptional political stability. Yeah, indeed. And we can't be as sure of that today as we, we have been until recently. That was John Kay. I'd like to remind listeners that they can listen to other podcasts in the Moneymakers series, either by going to our website, www.money-makers.co, or by looking for the Moneymakers name on iTunes and other podcast channels. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.